0: In a way, we had like all our chips in, like we bet everything on this, right? So there was no conversation around, what if this doesn't work? What if people don't buy it, right? Conversations all rolled around like, how do we make this work?
1: Hello and welcome to the third episode of Grit, a show about persevering and betting on your dreams. I am Akibora, and in this show, I have conversations with some incredible Indians who have gone against the grain taken risks, overcome adversity, and have never given up on their dreams. If you enjoy our podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review it. It helps us a lot. You can also follow us along on Instagram at critbyakivora. In today's episode, I talk to Arman Soon, one of the three co-founders of Sleepy Owl Coffee. A small-time Pokemon card arbitrage in middle school gave Arman his first taste of entrepreneurship, But it wasn't until law school where he met Ashwajit, another co-founder of Sleepy Owl, that he developed a true passion for building businesses. After successfully starting and running two ventures in law school, Arman and Ashwajit decided they wanted to continue to pursue entrepreneurship. They joined forces with Ashwajit's childhood friend Ajay and together they found a way to disrupt the beverage industry in India. With the goal of making freshly brewed coffee convenient and accessible to Indians, The three of them came up with the idea for Sleepy Owl. They started in a two-bedroom apartment in Dwarka, where they tested and developed their first cold brew, coffee. Since then, Sleepy Owl has grown to serve over a million households and is now available in retail stores in Mumbai and Delhi and across the nation online. Arman and his story are super cool and I really do hope you enjoy the episode. And if you haven't already, try Sleepy Owl's coffee. It's fabulous. Thank you so much, Armand, for taking time out to talk to me. And I, I know that everyone I've spoken to so far and I told them, I met my friends yesterday and I said, I'm interviewing one of the co-founders of Sleepy Owl and they all drink the cold brew and they were all really, really excited. So thank you so much for taking time out. Um, so I figured a great place to start would be just getting to know you um, and what your life was like before Sleepy Owl, like where were you born, where did you go to school, stuff like that.
0: Interesting. So I, you know, I grew up in uh, Calcutta, right? Uh, I went to a convent school in Calcutta and did my entire schooling there. And it was an all-boys school. Uh, It was hyper-competitive. You know, we had a good mix and balance of uh, studies as well as sports, as well as extracurricular activities. So we had the opportunity to, you know, debate, elocute, write, uh so it, it was it was a fair mix and I uh I think you know I would call myself a jack of all and master of none so I tried my hand at uh you know a bunch of sports a little bit of debating and elocuting. I had to maintain my grades uh my parents were you know my mom's a tutor so she was teaching other kids you know uh batch mates, uh other students so it was always important that her son did you know exceptionally well because it would be silly if like I had poor grades and like she's a tutor. So she made sure that she always had, you know, my brother and I, like, study a lot. Um, And uh, grades were important in our household, but we were never, like, berated for poor grades, but it was something that was, like, taken for granted because my mom was exceptionally brilliant herself. Um, You know, when it came to deciding in the 11th and 12th grade, essentially, that's when it's, like, a crucial decision about, okay, what subjects you take uh, will push you towards a certain career. And uh, my parents encouraged me for like uh, taking up the sciences, and I too was like you know uh, off the mindset that okay if I take up science then I have like a broad arena of opportunities ahead of me, and uh, it was a typical you know engineering and medicine option. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I took up physics, chemistry, maths, and bio, and um, <laughs> I thought that would give me like all options open to like pursue any career that I wanted to. Um, I wanted to, at that point in the 11th grade, uh, become a doctor, um, but my, my dad always thought I was too emotional when it came to people uh, to, you know, uh, become a doctor. And I uh, started feeling a bit disillusioned about uh, the medical profession because I felt like it would involve 10 or 12 years of further studying uh, before I could actually get a job and work and so on and so forth. Again, it's a misconception. Not ne- it's not necessary that that's how it always happens. Um but uh you know you're um gullible and like at at 17, 18, you're not thinking about everything very rationally. So I, I was quick to say, okay, fine, like I don't want to do that. I want to become an engineer. And um I think my my girlfriend at the time, her father was a marine mm-hmm. engineer. So I was like, Cool, I should get into like the merchant navy and become a marine engineer so I could impress him. <laughs> and uh, you know, again, like uh, you know, a decision not based on uh too much, but <clears throat> I I realized, like, two months before, like, all the engineering exams that I'm colorblind. Like, I passed an official test saying that I'm colorblind. And, like, uh, it's a, you know, it's a black and white situation. Like, you know, you're not, uh, you can't apply or get into the merchant navy if you're colorblind. So those hopes came crashing down immediately. And, like, I wasn't interested in any other kind of engineering. And uh, I sat down with my family and, you know, we figured that, like, well, what Arman really likes doing is debating and talking and, you know, arguing. So, you know, would law be an option? So, so I was, again, like you said, very flippant, uh, you know, uh, and I said, yeah, cool. Like, you know, I would love to like, study the law mm-hmm. and it will, you know, lead me to a point where I can argue in a court of law one day and like uh, that would, you know, hone my speaking skills. And, um, you know, I, I applied for the law entrance examinations and studied hard for them. And, uh, I went to Jindal Global Law School for a five-year degree, um, which would, you know, ultimately I with a law degree, but, uh, life happened. You, you know, learned a lot of things along that journey as well. And, um, law school was, you know, absolutely fascinating and exciting. And the subjects were amazing. The faculty that we had was amazing. The environment was again, you know, um, it was, it was very, uh, it wasn't a strictly law because you had to learn psychology, sociology, history. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it was very vast and, uh, that experience, like even now today that like I'm doing business, I wouldn't trade my law degree for a strict BBA or an economics degree or something just like, you know, uh, a single subject because I feel like law school was absolutely fantastic.
1: That's amazing. So that's a bit about
0: that's a bit about me and like my my you know sort of educational journey. Yeah. Um, as a as an individual, like I said, I had varied interests. So you know I was always like into a lot of sports, uh, into a lot of extracurricular activities because I just felt uh, early on that you know you need to have a try and have a well-rounded sort of personality slash upbringing. Yeah. Right. Um. Uh, just being like great at like one thing you know is 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 not good so so i just felt like i wanted to do a bunch of things and like try my hand at a lot of things and uh, even through law school that's something that i did you know it was like okay like while i want to get a law degree right but like uh, ultimately like you know wherever you apply for anything right people want to see a person who's taken initiative who uh, has uh, you know participated in uh, extracurricular activities so, so I, f- I felt like, you know, it wasn't necessarily only because I wanted to do it from an interest point of view. It was also that I understood that that's what made the balanced CV, right? Like, you know, it, uh, you know and when you go to potential employers or potential college applications for your master's, right? Like you needed to have like a well-rounded uh, application and that only happens if you try your hand at more things. And, when, and, you know, so even if my, say, motivation to try a lot of things was not right, or, you know, that's one way to look at it. But it did teach me each of these activities, you know, it made me interact with different people and taught me different things. So I would encourage, like, you know, everyone to, like, definitely go beyond just your textbook or your day-to-day that's expected of you. And, um, you know, uh, expose yourself to new things. Yeah. Uh, just for example, like, I never once believed that, like, I had uh, an acting bone in me. Um, but when I was in university and because I was just an extremely energetic person, uh, we had one of our uh, professors who was directing a play and she chose me just because of like the energy that I had. And I was like, cool, like I'll do it. And, you know, we did, um, two musicals and I had to dance on stage and I had to perform on stage and it's not something I thought I could do, but I came out of it like absolutely free of any sort of stage fright. Right. Like I, I love the stage now, you know. So I felt like, you know, that's something that I might not have thought I could do, but like I put myself in that situation and came out of it stronger.
1: Just a question over there in terms of you said you tried so many new things and there's always this to try something new you have to leave your comfort zone and that adds mm-hmm. up in some ways. But I would really wanted to ask you in the first few times you tried something new, it might have been scary. How, how did you overcome that? And even now, as you try new things, does it become easier in some ways?
0: I mean, uh, yeah, you're right. The first few times is always scary. But uh, that, that's what's also fun, right? Like, so I remember when I, uh, you know, my school debating and my college debating were very different, right? The entire debating format was very different, right? So when I had to debate in college with, say, You know, your peers, your seniors, and, um, you know, it wasn't like you had a day at home to prepare with your family or the internet to really give you all the information you need to speak about, right? In school, it was slightly more about pre-prepared speeches that you went and gave. In college, it was like, okay, like 15 minutes, everybody goes, prepares their arguments, and they come back and argue, right? So, yes, the first time there was like fumbling and confusion and like we lost the debate, right? But that motivated me to say, okay, like second time I could do it better. You approach it differently. The third time you again, you know, do it differently. And I remember in one of my like fourth or fifth or sixth debates, like, you know, it was kick-ass. Like, you know, I had great arguments and like I was funny and like I absolutely killed it. And like I left that day feeling this sense of high, like, you know, okay, wow, like I got a standing ovation and like our team won. And like, you know, so so once you, you know, try it a few times and you – you have to understand why you're failing at it or why you're not doing as well. And then keep tweaking your approach. And this could apply to anything. Right. Um, and and once you do that, you'll obviously hit a point where like, you know, you'll, you'll get good at it and um, you know, you'll, you'll have, you'll taste that bit of success and then you'll know, okay, if I can replicate this, right, yep. it would be amazing. And um, you know, you always look forward to that bit of uh, cheer and uh, ovation and, you know, it kind of gets you uh, riled up to to perform better. So so I, I think this would apply to any sort of activity, uh, be it sport, be it theater, be it uh, debating or mooting. Um, you know, you, you have to keep like, you have to fail. Like, you know, one can't. I don't think, unless you're absolutely exceptional, you would win every single time. I mean, even even like, you know, say a Roger Federer or a Djokovic have like as many losses in their kitty, uh, you know, um, and, uh, it's something that you, you know, overcome over time. So
1: that's amazing. And almost, I feel like that brings us, brings us back to law school where I was reading that you guys started a clothes manufacturing company when you were in law school. Mm-hmm. And so I guess all those trying new things, um, in high school might've helped you in some ways to take that plunge and try new things in, in college.
0: Correct. So in in high school, you know, obviously, I don't think I tried my hand at anything uh, from a business standpoint Mm -hmm. or like, you know, uh, I mean, there were two projects that one so in in high school. There were two instances that I can remember where I took exceptional initiative. Um, One was, uh, you know, when I was in my 12th grade, we had a neighbor who came to me and who came to my mom, who was a tutor and said, listen, like, you know, all across like this beautiful South Calcutta neighborhood. There are parks and the parks are absolutely filthy because there's no awareness about, you know, uh, cleaning or like disposal of waste and like so on and so forth. So uh, because my mom had a lot of students that she was teaching, he wanted to have her like, you know, rope in her students to do a cleaning drive on Saturdays and Sundays at the parks to like pick up litter. Right. And uh, my mom told me about it. And I was like, you know, uh, more than like your students. Like, why don't I, like, take the initiative to pitch this to my peers in, at school and, like, uh, other schools and then get as many people to come to these, uh, to, to our neighborhood. And, uh, you know, we gave it a name, calling it the Save Southern Avenue campaign. Mm-hmm. And uh, we uh, decided that on Saturday and Sunday, we'd go in the morning, 40 to 50 kids at a time, and actually have, like, big garbage bags and pick up litter and clean the parks. And uh, for me, you know, being the person who initiated this whole project with this gentleman, it was a great learning experience of how to rile people up for a cause, you know, and get people together motivated for the same thing uh, and also give them incentives to want to do it every Saturday and Sunday, right? So this whole experience like was something that I did uh, that I believe was like, you know, slightly out of the box. Again, I wouldn't, I would be lying if I said, that i didn't realize early on into this whole thing that oh this would also be great for my scene you know absolutely honest like you know it was i knew it would be and i was like but i'm motivated about the cause i genuinely believe in it and i'm going to do it and yes the bonus is that i can put this down you know as something i did uh and i recognize that and i think people should recognize that sometimes right like it's it's i mean uh it's part of the process um And there's the second thing that I did that I I believe was exciting was in the seventh grade. Uh, You know, I I had collected a lot of Pokemon cards. And I think when I was my fifth and sixth and seventh grade, my parents would like, you know, ultimately like for whatever reason, agree to get me more and more cards. But I woke up one day realizing that this is absolutely unnecessary Mm -hmm. and I don't need this. So I took a piece of paper, wrote down all the cards as well as the, uh, the arbitrary price that I felt that they would sell for based on value. The my perceived value of them and I went to you know I still remember I was in school and I went to a few friends and I showed them that sheet and I started selling my cards and the middle school coordinator caught me doing this and uh, you know she was like she was she was absolutely shocked that you know in the school environment like there's buying and selling of like cards which you're not allowed to bring to school in the first place um, and but she was kind enough to like you know she was so worried about me and she's like listen you know, Arman, is everything okay at home? Like, is your family having problems? And I was like, hell no. Like, you know, (laughs) I just wanted to get rid of this. And like, uh, I realized that I could profiteer from it. So that's why I was doing this. So there was no punishment, but my cards were confiscated and that project died, you know, (laughs) then and then. But it was only many years later when I was in college that my co-founder Ashwajit, you know, really encouraged me uh, in the second year of law school He was like, you know, we really need to, you know, we, you know, do things to like make an extra buck and like we can do things and come up with ideas to sell something or to make something or to uh, fill in a a gap that we see uh, with a service that we can provide. That was his whole like, you know, uh, explanation of like why we should do something, you know, he's like, and well, that connected me to like my, you know, childhood experience. And I was like, yeah, like I've done that before you know, it makes sense. So in simple words, like his thinking was, there's always a gap that you see in your day-to-day life, Mm -hmm. right? That you look at and be like, well, that's not solved, right? And it can be solved. And then you can think of a service or a product to solve it, right? You think of Airbnb, think of Uber. These are just big examples, right? Of like, there's a gap in the market and someone decides to fill that gap with a product or a service that they have or that they come up with or they create. So, at Jindal, which was a new university, the first thing that we realized was like, colleges all over the world have merchandise. Mm-hmm. And we at Jindal don't have merchandise, right? At that point, we were maybe 350 students on campus, not more. But we still felt like, you know, uh, you don't need to wait to become a big university to have merchandise. Like, it's something that can start then. So we went to the vice chancellor with a proposal and said that, listen, we'll procure the t-shirts. We'll do, you can approve the designs that we'll bring to you. And the vice chancellor was a busy gentleman. But he liked our enthusiasm and our idea and he gave us a free hand to do it. Yeah. Right? There weren't too many rules and regulations at that point in time. So we, you know, we, <laughs> we pretended like we had his absolute permission to do it and nobody ever asked him otherwise. And, um, you know, we, 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 we went ahead and we uh, found a supplier in Delhi, uh, Gurgaon, who was manufacturing uh, hoodies right and we got you know we we sent google forms out to students um, and we got orders from the students with their name phone number size that they prefer uh, color that they want so on and so forth and once we collected all the orders we collected the money from the students uh, went to a supplier got the merchandise made it came to college and you know we we booked a classroom and we handed out and distributed the merchandise to all the students and at the end of all of this, we made a buck, right? Yeah. And it was a fantastic experience.
1: Sorry, you guys designed the t-shirts and the hoodies as well?
0: Correct, yeah, we designed it. I, I didn't design it. My co-founder Ashwiji did it. was very simple. It was a hoodie with the JGLS logo on it. Nothing else. You know, <clears throat> absolutely simple. Um, but, but this whole experience from like, you know, A to Z of this project, right? We, we, we ran a small business, right? Um, and we did this for three years in a row. Right. So we did a second year and a third year. And each time that we did it, we made different mistakes, whether it's how you capture orders from your fellow classmates and students, whether it's how you collect money, whether it's the designs of the t-shirts changed because we got feedback from the students. There were issues with sizes that came in. like you know, And Excel is not always an Excel when you buy it from the manufacturer. So we, we did a lot of like, you know, um, tweaks each time we did it. And each time we did it, we learned something new. And after three years of doing it continuously, like, uh, you know, we stopped doing it. Um, It was absolutely phenomenal uh, as an overall experience. And during the times of the months we did this, we didn't ever have to ask for pocket money. So that was like a very, like, you know, empowering feeling that, okay, we've, you know, uh, managed to make a little money by doing this. And it was a lot of effort. You know, mind you, it wasn't something that uh, was was easy because um, it involved, like, you know, a lot, lot of hours of the day where other students are doing other things, mm-hmm. be it like reading more, applying for more things, writing papers, drinking, partying, whatever it is. We had to take out three or four hours a day for that month or two months to make sure that, you know, this happens smoothly and we don't embarrass ourselves. Right. Um, so, so, yeah, that was, that was an absolutely fun experience. And so it was during this journey that like Ashwajit and I sat down and we were like, okay, like this is a mini project. Can we do something bigger? Right. Can we really start a startup while we were in college? Okay. You know, and, um, and that's when we came up with the idea of selling bar accessories in India. Right? So we ran a company called Ishak for three years. Uh, it was the third, fourth, and fifth year of law school, okay. where we actually imported beer pong tables, beer bongs, eyeshot shot glasses, whiskey stones, and a bunch of really fancy bar and party accessories. Mm-hmm. And we called ourselves like Ishak bar and party accessories. That was the name of the company. And we actually imported all of this from China. Uh-huh.
1: Uh,
0: and, you know, we, we connected with suppliers on Alibaba.com. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we got one of our, his uncles, who was an uh, importer and exporter of goods, to help us with you know, understanding how this whole process works. And all our communications happened on Skype with suppliers. And all our negotiations happened, you know, on Skype as well. And we got this big container that came via C. Uh, to us in India, and we stored everything at his house in Jalandhar, Punjab, because there was a big house, so they had a little bit of space to store everything. And his mom and uh, the help at home would pack and dispatch all the orders, and we'd handle the e-commerce operations from our classroom. You know, so the marketing, branding, uh, online operations, uh, all of that happened while we were studying in school. And uh, packaging and dispatch happened with help from his mother and the house help. Mm-hmm. And on the weekends, we'd like, you know, take a bus, go to Jalander, come back to Delhi. And um, it was a good experience because like, oh, we also did a lot of PR around it, right? Like mm-hmm. I reached out to Your Story or uh, a bunch of other newspapers, magazines that, you know, with this whole presentation that law students launch business, yeah. you know, like, you know, 19 year old law students launch Uh, bar accessory business you know online and it was e-commerce strictly e-commerce at that time so we managed to give it a flip you know that okay see because again you know you have to understand like uh, marketing and pr is also how you craft your story right everyone has a story right but there are some stories that get talked about more than others right Um, because it's an art like actually getting you know buzz about your idea anything you know even if it's a social service you know how difficult it is for people who run, who raise money for social causes to raise money, it's right? It's impossible. It's uh-huh. so tough because there are hundreds of people for hundreds of different causes raising money. So even each cause, however noble it might be, you need to really market yourself and create like this buzz about what you're doing to get more money, right? right. From, from potential donors. So anyway, it was this, you know, fantastic, like, you know, uh, thing that we crafted and like we were all over the news and like entrepreneurship and e-commerce in India was picking up, you know, business wasn't doing great, but like our peers thought like we we're multi-millionaires, uh, you know, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it was it was again an absolutely fascinating experience, but uh, being, since it was the first time we ever did something at this scale, we made so many mistakes, okay. you know, and, um, and um, well, again, like, you know, uh, when, when we finished law school, like we shut this business down because uh, we knew it's not something we want to carry forward anymore. Yeah. And uh, all the you know, pending inventory that we had, we sold it to uh, restaurants, bars, cafes. Yeah. So it became a, from a B2C to a kind of a B2B business. But we got rid of most of our inventory, even if we had to get rid of it at cost. So yeah. we didn't make money on that. Um, and yeah, like ultimately the business lost money. But uh, we came out of it with uh, two things. A, a, wealth of experience about supply chain, operations, branding, PR, marketing, e-commerce, website development, everything, right? And the second big realization was we don't want to be lawyers, right? And uh, I think that was the defining sort of uh, uh, moment for us because uh, it put us onto a very different career path.
1: Yeah. Like when you guys made those mistakes, you said you made a ton of mistakes running this business. When you mm-hmm. made those mistakes, were there moments? How did you grapple with that? Would you say, oh no, what like finished, we're done? Or was it like, okay, let's sit down. Let's not brood too much over this. What were those conversations like?
0: Um, You know, so it's interesting. So there were, there were again, two things that happened. One is we didn't know those were mistakes at that point in time, right? You thought you're doing it absolutely correctly. Like for our first website for Ishaq, we were 19 and, uh, we uh we we built the website by hiring a website development and designing agency somewhere in ghaziabad and we traveled from sonipat to ghaziabad and like meet these guys and build the website so on and so forth and they they charged us over a lakh of rupees for like our entire you know process at that time it felt like yeah this is how it's done this is how like you know websites are built because we didn't know better but um Obviously, three years into like this, and then you know, are uh, you know, more, more exposed to more stuff? So, when we built Sleepy Owl's website, you know how much it cost us? Like 20,000, maybe? No, zero. zero. Oh, you right? did? Because we, we, we said that okay, like, you know, when we got a Squarespace account and uh, you know, got a Shopify backend and like just dragged and dropped things and made a very basic website. Mm-hmm. You don't need to spend that kind of money, you know, when you're just getting started necessarily. Right. Um, so, so, I mean, that's just one example of like, you know, uh, you know, like going to a professional agency to build something versus finding like drag and drop tools online to build it. Right. And even now, like even say that at that time, you know, going to an agency, which is expensive now, like we use Upwork and Fiverr and we get like, you know, uh, people around the world who can, like, develop things for you quickly at really, really minimal costs, right? Uh, Freelancers, essentially. At that time, we didn't even know the concept of a freelancer. We thought the only way to do it was an agency, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So this is just one of the mistakes. And like this, I don't think at that point in time, we knew those were mistakes, right? right? Uh, It's only later that we realized that, okay, everything could have been done differently. That's that's
1: amazing. And then you guys shut this business down and then went into you guys applied for jobs and you were working at an ed tech firm for a while
0: correct correct so that was again interesting because when we you know uh, law school was about to come to an end and obviously the questions started pouring in right like uh you know what are you going to do are you going to apply for law jobs like you know uh, what's happening with Ishak and your business and you know do you want to do this do you want to do that and even we internally realized that okay like we need to decide because like we didn't do any internships right like so, so while most students were like actually doing internships at corporate law firms and like, you know, um, trying to get like pre-placement offers from those firms, like we never did any of that. Right. So we were actually in that field, maybe a step behind. Mm-hmm. Right. So like if I were to sit with my peers for the pre-placement interviews, right, there's no chance that like I'd get hired over them, you know. Um, so, so it kind of became this, you know, like we really had to figure out what we want to do. So you know, I did sit for some law interviews. Ashree did sit for some law interviews, but we we didn't have our heart in it. You know, it just wasn't there. Because I think, like they say, entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, once you get a taste of it and you get the you you start enjoying it, right? Like uh, it draws you in completely. So so both of us kind of felt that our our happiness and excitement lies in doing business. And uh, however, like you know, we weren't entirely sure. Like you know, okay what to do next. Like we didn't have our next big idea, yeah. right? Even though, and another thing that happened during Ishak was like, you know, uh, over the course of those three years, like, uh, another big mistake that we made was we could only import quantities in bulk, right? Your minimum order of quantities from, uh, when you're ordering from China was, was like it varies. So there were some products we had a thousand units each. There were some products we had 5,000 units each, right. And I could only get like a truck, uh, a ship full of, you know, uh, cargo, essentially. So when some products did better than others, and we ran out of stock of some products, and other products we had too much inventory of, right? So we were basically in this limbo, like, you know, like our website had 11 SKUs, 11 stock keeping units, and the ones that did really well, sold out really quickly, and then we were down to five units. But I could not just order the remaining ones and, you know, not order these. Yeah. You know, so, so and we also took a call, you know, like the, the capital that we borrowed from our parents, we finished all that capital in buying inventory. So yeah. we had no money for operations, no money for marketing. Right? Uh, so so we were like, okay, you know, if you want to buy more inventory again, like can I ask my parents and buy more inventory or should we like wherever will the capital come from?
1: Yeah. Right? So it's just this
0: complicated mess we were in. Um so we knew that we can't carry forward that business. We want to shut it down. Yeah. Um, honestly as young excited individuals uh somewhere i would say you know our, we also got over it you know like uh when you're when you're when you have your idea or your business like we got over it we were like you know okay this is cool but this is not the next big thing this yeah. is not like you know where i see my future i'm not going to be selling bar accessories forever um you know and yeah and uh you know, so so we, we started thinking of a lot of ideas then, like, you know, new ideas. So while we were running this business, we were thinking of ideas for our next business. You know, yeah. so you understand you're not, you're not really focused on maximizing this. Your mind is already thinking, okay, what else can we sell? Can we also, like, you know, come up with another product and can we do this? So I'd say we were a bit unfocused, you know, at that point in time. But to be fair to us, you know, we had law school, uh, extracurricular activities in law school, uh, running a business, drinking, partying, having fun with your friends, you know? So there were, uh, you know, I was on like a couple of sports teams. So we'd have to travel a lot for like sports games around the country. So, I mean, over committed ourselves to a lot of things at a young age, but, um, we learned a lot from all of these things. And, uh, you know, we, we couldn't come up with a good idea in time. And, uh, you know, my, my parents encouraged me to take up a job at this edtech firm, which was run by a family friend. And she was kind enough to, you know, uh, she was very happy that I tried Ishak and I had these initiatives and everything else. And I had no experience in like, you know, traditional marketing and PR, but she was like, you know, this is a, it's, it's a young edtech firm and uh, you seem like a person who can take initiative, right? So why don't you join us and like, we'll teach you and you can learn and you can teach us and it's going to be this, you know, environment where you can work with us. And for me, it was like, okay, like I'll really get to see how a real startup works.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: So I felt like if I don't have an idea or the capital uh, at that point to start a business again, why not join a young business instead of a law firm and see how like, you know, a real organization uh, in the real world works and operates. Fair. And Ashwajid did the same. Ashwajid joined a fashion startup called Koda Jeans, where, uh, you know, they were selling uh, selvedge denim jeans. Uh, online, you know, it was an e commerce business again, and he joined them. And uh, again, it was very fascinating for him to work in a real business and you know, do these things. But um, we we were always in touch and uh, you know, trying to figure out uh, what is the you know, how do we get out? <laughs> how do we get out again? Like, how do we you know, work on something uh, that's our own? Yeah. You know, because uh, when you are, you know, again. When you're working at a startup, uh, you know, especially if it's a young company, uh, you're putting in like your 200% for the company, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, so you're, you're, you're doing everything the company needs you to do. So, so while my role was marketing and PR, I was involved in everything. Mm-hmm. And Ashwati, the role was branding, but he was involved in like everything, sales and like operations and all of that. So somewhere I think he got disillusioned and he was like, if I'm going to be doing all of this, right? I think I'm young enough. And smart enough to be able to do it for my own company.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so that's when him and Ajay, who is his childhood friend, who was actually working in at JP Morgan in New York, started chatting about like, you know, all of these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ajay too was keen on coming back to India and, you know um, you know, moving from the banking world to getting into the startup world. So yeah. he had yeah. options to like join a finance firm in Singapore or like, once he started talking to Ashri, it's the master of convincing people. So, so he convinced Ajay to like, you know, consider working on whatever, you know, that he was thinking of. We didn't have a fixed idea then. And he convinced me also saying that, listen, I'm quitting my job and like, I want to do a business, but I want to do it with you because like you're my best friend. And like, you know, you complement my skills very well. So maybe we should do business together. And, uh, I think, uh, you know, in all of these conversations, uh, you know, long story short, we figured out that the coffee market is 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 ripe for disruption, yep. and uh, all three of us got together and like started working towards what then became Sleepy Out.
1: That's insane! Super cool. Um, just a question about like going back to when you said you were in law school, and there were other kids that obviously were in that moment maybe more qualified for law internships, and then you started the startup. Were there moments where you felt oh, no, maybe I should just like not go against the grain and just keep going in this path because it's set. How did you remain so disagreeable and true to yourself? Were there times where you swerved back and forth? And how did you come back to that center that, no, I will build a business Mm -hmm. of my own?
0: Interesting, very interesting question. So, uh, you know, I guess, so, so when our parents, both his parents and my parents gave us capital to start this business during law school, right? It wasn't this great, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates' conversation that, listen, if it does well, drop out of law school and, like, do what you want to. It was like, we'll give you the cash, but the deal is very simple. Like, you finish your degree. You get your degree. Yeah. And you also get your degree with flying colors. Like, make sure your grades are up to the mark and you are performing and so on and so forth. So, during that phase where you were doing the business, we were mindful of, like, our grades and our uh, law education and, like, you know, everything else around that. We we never let our you know feet get too far off the ground in terms of that. Of course, we didn't do as many internships as our peers did, so on and so forth. But somewhere deep down, we knew that like even if this doesn't work out, and uh, if we <clears throat> if we had to get back to the legal profession, like even now I would say like you know um, fine we might not have been as qualified as our peers, right? But. I don't think either of us were afraid not to, to be able to not crack it even then. You know, we were confident enough in ourselves and in uh, our understanding of, uh, you know, the hiring environment that we could have graduated from law school without the requisite internships and still figured out a way to, you know, uh, become lawyers, right? Having said that, like the option always existed for us to you know, fine, you couldn't join the top tier firms, but I could join a tier two or a tier three or a tier four firm, right? Even in the law, among the law firms, there are startups, right? There are people who start, you know, lawyers who are three years, four years into the business, decide to start their own firm, right? And again, they are not necessarily hiring, you know, student number one, two, three, right? They're also thinking, okay, can I hire someone who can think on their feet? You know, who's done something different, who's generally smart and capable, Right, so we would have qualified on those grounds, yeah. right? And we could have got a law job, right? So, so we weren't particularly afraid of going against the grain, um, but we felt like if we don't follow our passion, we're doing disservice to ourselves. So that became the you know sort of conversation with ourselves that listen, like you have an idea, you're passionate about it. Stop lying to yourself, you know, and act on it, because we were at the age and the not just the age of where we felt we can act on it or like we had the freedom to, you know, there was no responsibility. In some sense, there wasn't a, too much fear of failure. You know, again, again, I'd, I'd be very, very honest, it comes from a situation or a place where we're, we're privileged. Yeah. Like I'm going to university. I had parents who paid for my startup. You know, it's, it's, it, uh, and I always look back and acknowledge that we we had these things. For those that don't, it's so much tougher. Right? But, you know uh we didn't take that privilege for granted but Mm -hmm. we were privileged you know and i would i would like to acknowledge that i don't want to ignore that aspect uh so if someone tells me today like we want to start a business and we don't have the capital where do we get it you know um or or like our friends and our family can't support our business or they don't want to contribute to it right i'm struggling for an answer because like i got very lucky
1: yeah
0: right like i wouldn't know what else to do to be honest you know um and um second thing would be like we both knew that our parents are extremely supportive by that i mean not in the capital monetary sense we knew that you know if we want to pursue entrepreneurship or get a job in a non-legal field it's not going to be a battle with our parents you know it wasn't that at all you know they were extremely encouraging and extremely supportive and other problem that i feel like many people might have right is where they are fighting two battles one is trying to pursue their passion second is fighting their family you know uh, to allow them to let them do it happily absolutely right so so absolutely. we didn't have, oh sorry go on go on so we didn't have that issue we didn't have that issue
1: that's it is like it's a great sense of privilege to be able to do what you want and not necessarily even in entrepreneurship just in picking a field of your choice even if you want to work in another company sometimes we have these perceptions that these are the four or five industries that are great mm-hmm. that will set you up for life but really to have that support and have that cushion at the bottom is really nice that in case mm-hmm. you do fail, like you're not it's not the end of the world you know
0: yeah, absolutely. So for us, we knew that even if we fail in this business or we don't decide to become lawyers after doing a five-year degree, it's not the end of the world. Like, you know, our our parents were like, it's not that any, either of us come from big family businesses where we can fall back on the business. So that also wasn't there. You know, it wasn't the luxury of like, okay, I'll go work with my dad. Neither of us had that, you know, or mom for that matter. I don't want to be sexist. You know, we couldn't go back and work with our parents. Right? So it was still the situation that, okay, like, they will love us and feed us, but we still are on our own in the world, you know, to figure out what to do. But you know, Akansha, just that just the fact that I know that they will love us and feed us is the best feeling ever. Like, it takes you 10 steps ahead of like burying, Yeah, you know. So, so yeah, kudos to them for putting up with us. That's all
1: for sure. I, it makes such a big difference when you have like cheerleaders and supporters who push you forward and say, okay, you're trying something new, like at least give it a shot. And Absolutely. it's a good thing to hear you say that. So mm-hmm. fast forwarding back to where we left off was that you guys decided, okay, there's a niche in the coffee industry that is isn't tapped, mm-hmm. And you guys then bought a one-way ticket to Chikmangroul to figure out mm-hmm. everything there is to you know about coffee. And right. so what happened there? So you guys were in two bedroom in Dwarka and figuring out coffee in India. So how did mm-hmm. it go from that idea in your head to reality?
0: So so during law school, Ashwajit was an avid French press user. So he'd like, you know, figure out where to get his coffee beans from. And that was before the third wave of coffee in India, where you had like artisanal roasters, roasting fresh coffee beans, so on and so forth. There was just a handful of places where you'd get coffee beans. So he was getting his coffee beans and making a French press and like actually brewing coffee, right? And I'm I mean, I was more of an instant coffee drinker. And uh, none of our peers were particularly into this, you know, coffee making habit uh, per se. Everyone settled for the ten rupee Nescafe machine that was there in the university, and you could get a cup of coffee from it, right? Yeah. Um, and um, you know, so so when Ajay and Ashlee were talking, they kind of figured out that in America, like, coffee is really blowing up, and like, coffee startups are really picking up. And upon like basic research in India, we figured out that other than like one or two companies that were buying beans from uh, Chikmanglur and Cool and roasting it and selling beans, right? So their value add was to actually roast green coffee and sell roasted beans or roasted ground beans, right? Um, there was nothing else going on in the market. And cold brew as a trend had just picked up around the world, where cafes, uh, roasteries, uh, in the beverage space, people were making a lot of cold brew coffee. Right? In India, there was not a single person doing cold brew commercially at that time. So, so we figured out that, like, you know, uh, that's, the, that's the gap. And being cold coffee drinkers, so I was an Escafe instant coffee, cold coffee drinker, right? So we figured out that, you know, uh, cold brew, because of the nature of it being a cold beverage in a hot country like India, would really work, right? Like people would like it. So again, quick background backdrop to the situation we didn't do no market research we did no uh, sample analysis data sets like nothing you know didn't even do market sizing to be honest okay this is how big the market is it was just simple you know uh, why don't why don't more people use a french press why don't more people make freshly brewed coffee in general hot or cold doesn't matter right it's because there's a learning curve right towards being able to do that some sort of uh, intimidation with black coffee, right? Because we are a, you know, milk drinking nation or like I'd say a cold coffee drinking nation where there's a lot of milk and not as much black coffee because it's intimidating. So we figured out that, okay, we could fill in this gap by being a company. And again, goes back to what I was saying earlier is that, you know, once you see a gap, you have to see, okay, do I have a product or service that can cater to this gap and can I make money off it and provide value? both provide value and make money. They go hand in hand. If you're not making money, you don't have a business, right? If you're not providing value, you won't last. Yeah. Right. So, so we figured that, okay, this gap exists and uh, what would be the best way to fill this gap? So we understood early on that. Yes, we could also, you know, by then there were a handful of people selling coffee beans, right? So we said, okay, we could also source coffee beans and sell coffee beans, but we felt that there's no value add to that because the end consumer in India is not ready or not educated or not ripe for going through the learning curve of brewing fresh coffee themselves. So we wanted to eliminate that as well. Like they should drink fresh coffee, but they should not have to be able to you know, go through complicated brewing processes to make it because we felt that was the challenge. Yeah. So our company and our idea became, you know, can we, uh, can we make coffee convenient? Right, so our mission became convenience, and all our products from then till now have been focused around uh, making coffee drinking, making fresh coffee drinking convenient. Um, and cold brew was the start, you know, because it's a very, very easy to make convenient beverage. And uh, yeah, and when we had this idea, like you know, I think before we went to Chik Lur, we ordered samples from suppliers from Chik Uh, you know, which was again, you know, for anyone trying to order raw material for any product like you just have to google it pick up the phone make tons of phone calls and uh, pretend like you're a company that exists get samples you know do your product development testing ideation and then once you're ready like you know and you figure it out like you know suppliers will supply it to you like it's not very difficult to get raw material for anything uh, but you have to be able to like have the patience and perseverance to like you know call up 10 people before you find the right one who has what you're looking for at the right price. Right. So, so yeah, that, that's, you know, that's annoying, but it and takes time, but you'll reach there. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, that brings me to a really interesting question. You said you have to call up a lot of people and figure it out. And did you guys have any mentors and help there? Like who did you reach out to when you were confused when you were learning about the coffee industry and say, okay, these are beans. And this is how you roast them. And,
0: how do you guys at that stage no, we didn't have any mentors or anyone guiding us it was too early on uh you know to have that and i feel like at that stage you know unless you have friends family uncle aunts who you know who you can pick up the phone and talk to uh that would be like a good way to get some clarity but we didn't uh and we picked up the phone and called a bunch of suppliers before going to chikmanglur and fixed up a few meetings for ourselves but uh you know when we when we went to chikmanglur and we Presented ourselves as uh, curious individuals with a lot of questions. Uh, I think the, the people there understood that uh, they don't know it all. Like they understood that we don't know it all. Now there are two things. It can either come off as, uh, you know, they, they could get the better of you. Right? Like because they know you don't know so they can make a fool out of you. Yeah. But if you're honest, honest, uh, you know, and you know enough to let them not make a fool out of you right so you have to so we did a lot of basic research again online just yeah. to get a fair idea of like how it works but when we went there like you know we had someone sit us down with a pen and a a4 sheet of paper right and on that a4 sheet of paper he explained to us like the entire process from planting to harvesting to roasting to supplying a coffee to us so like you know if you need to buy coffee from me understand that all of these steps happen and then he also told us like okay there are 20 different kinds of like possibilities so what do you want and we didn't know what we wanted then you know so it needed us to go back to the drawing board and doing a lot of like research to understand okay what is the kind of coffee that we really want for our product you know we had done some sampling earlier and we you know understood okay if if like we have this quality or this kind it'll taste this way and it'll be good but um, it took a while to, like, you know, get the, you know, final clarity on what kind of raw material we need. Now to get that, what we did was we emailed supplier like coffee, cold brew coffee companies around the world, right? So existing businesses and uh, people who were running businesses around the world. So we emailed emailed like a lot of other founders uh, and companies and asked them like relevant questions around this most cases people didn't you know bother to share the right information or answer our queries Um, but in in a couple of cases they did and we got a lot of information from them and they were kind enough to share knowledge right
1: and so you guys obviously did everything in your power to remain curious and learn everything was and build a basic product but while you were doing that were you ever worried because like you mentioned not many people were drinking this this coffee and were there ever doubts that what if people don't like this or what if this doesn't take or what if people aren't that into coffee and how did you what were those conversations like and how did you overcome that that if you did if you if those were questions
0: Uh, so so you know with 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 us it was um well, I think where's the, where where's like, you know, entrepreneurship is about risk taking, right? Like, uh, you hear this a lot and I'm repeating it possibly, but like, it is about risk taking, right? So in a way we had like all our chips in, like we bet everything on this, right? So there was no conversation around what if this doesn't work? What if people don't buy it? Right. Conversations all rolled around like, man, we've gone all in. Like I quit my job by then, like no salary, uh, you know, started like spending money on like this idea. Right. So, so we, we were like, you know, and I think we've done enough like research by that point to understand that there is scope. Okay. You know, so it's not like, uh, you know, that there isn't scope, there is scope, there is potential. And all conversations revolved around how do we make this work? You know, instead of like, will this work, won't this work? Is how do we make this work? And I think that's the mentality that you need to have when you're starting out to be eternally optimistic about what you're doing. But at the same time, like, you know, uh, these, you know, like compared to what we did the previous time, we, we did it a little, you know, with, with, with some tweaks, yeah. right? So, so for us, it became, okay, can we validate this idea with like, you know, ordering only 1,000 units of packaging, right? So for our first product, right, our goal was that can we sell or how do we sell 1,000 units ASAP? right and if we can sell 1000 units then we have something if we can't sell 1000 units then well we probably lost 5 or 10 lakh rupees and you know it's the end of it move yeah. on right so so the risk that we were taking was 6 months of our time right and maybe 10 lakhs in capital that was the risk so we we were we were we, we knew we were taking that risk right so so that was the minimum that i was willing to lose Fair, yeah. You have to be prepared for that. So to your question, like, will it work? Won't it work? So if it didn't work, that would be the loss. And we decided that we were comfortable with that loss. Mm -hmm. And then we'd restart our lives and figure out what next. Yeah. Right. But then as entrepreneurs, you're thinking of the upside. Right. Okay. If we can make this work. Yeah. Right. Then what? Right. And then like the world's your playground.
1: Absolutely. No, I I love what you said. I think I'm going to take away so much from this, especially in terms of rewording the questions. Like mm-hmm. what if this doesn't work to how can I make this work? Um, that's probably something I'm going to start to do in my own life and just think about things differently. But you also mentioned like the world's your oyster after a certain point. So even now, as you guys keep growing and you guys are growing so much from now you sell across the country online and in two cities now, you guys are in Delhi and Mumbai.
0: In retail stores, yeah.
1: Um, in terms of finding a balance between, okay, this is the realm of possibility right now and we need to dream big and innovate. How do you find that balance between not being too conservative and not being too aggressive? Like how do you find the right balance?
0: Interesting. So, you know, uh, one of the things that like we we've done since the beginning is, 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 Okay, so, so for us, it became like, you know, when we started our company, we had one SKU, right? We had just one SKU of one product and that's all we would sell. Yeah. So it, it was, we, we, in our heads, we thought that this is amazing because customer comes to our website, there's a product with one type. So if you buy or don't buy. There's no decision-making fatigue, mm-hmm. right? But whereas if you go to a Starbucks and you're looking for a coffee, like there are apparently a billion combinations that you can make. Yeah. Right, like so, it's like a caramel macchiato with skim milk, without this, with cream, with topping. So it's endless. Yeah. So we we felt like okay that you know it's so confusing and intimidating because you really don't know what you want. In our case, it was one product, and we knew we made a great product, right? So the customer that came on the website said, oh, "Okay, there's nothing like except this. Cool, let's just buy it." Right? If they chances are they like it because we put a lot of hard work into making a great quality product. So it removed decision-making fatigue and then we decided then on that we'll do less, but we'll do better, right? We won't do too many things, but what we do, we'll take our time to do it and it'll be kick-ass, right? So over the course of our journey in the last four years, to be honest, we have four products, right? And uh, of course, each product has a variant, right, among these four, like a flavor or a variant or whatever it is. But we just have four essential products, right? And um, each of those products have taken a long time to develop and uh, not just develop in terms of the product, but also how do we communicate it? How do we market it? Uh, how do we present it? You know, each launch was well-planned, uh, you know, so that it can get maximum attention, um, you know, got, got it into the right hands, right stores, right places, uh, right partnerships in terms of distribution, um, you know, the right amount of, uh, you know, uh, differentiation from what's already in the market. Right. So we never became a me too for another product. Yeah. We always like first, you know, first like in, in its category or creating a category in itself. So all of this involved a lot of time, energy and research. So while there's this, you know, um, somewhere there's this like excitement to want to do more, but like, because we're three co-founders, we always find a way to like, you know, balance each other's spirit And, uh, you know, calm each other down and figure out how to do it and bring a lot of sensibility to the table. And so I think the takeaway from this point is like, you know, do less, but do better uh, than doing a lot of things that are all very average. It's the opposite of my uh, childhood experience of like jack of all, master of none. (laughs) Now it's like, you know, be the master of one product instead of having 10 average products. Life comes full circle, you
1: know. Um, mm-hmm. okay. okay so last question is pivoting towards the coffee space and I wanted to ask you like I mentioned I'm a total pseudo coffee snob. I know nothing about the back end but I want to ask you what goes on so starting from where they grow the beans to where they to the final like coffee in your cup what mm-hmm. differentiates like instant coffee and and I guess that taste to the superior taste of Sleepy Owl, and why does, why does that taste better? So, what's
0: the difference between high quality okay, so, so, you know, coffee is of two kinds you have an Arabica and a Robusta, right? Broadly, uh, an Arabica is uh, a superior uh, quality coffee plant uh, as compared to a Robusta. Arabica grows at higher altitudes, Robusta grows at lower altitudes. Arabica is extremely prone to in insect infestation, uh, which is why it's tougher to maintain and grow, and it's a lot more expensive, right? So for your instant coffee, typically what happens is Robusta coffee is used. Uh, it has its own bitterness and its own taste that is appreciated sometimes. But broadly, they say that you know a great cup of coffee is made from Arabica beans, right? So the first thing that we did was source and look for 100 percent arabica coffee right um the next thing is roasting right coffee gets roasted light medium and dark and uh, each of these you know gets a very very different flavor uh in the end product right um uh, also the you know sorry a step before that is coffee beans depending on the kind of climate and soil and place they're grown in right you could have a coffee that has fruity notes you will have a coffee that has chocolatey notes, right? So for cold brew, they always say, and this is again something that we researched and found out. And we also felt that in India, a lot of people will drink the coffee with milk, mm-hmm. right? Like they'll make their cold brew with milk. So we always opted for coffees that have chocolatey notes, okay. right? So it became our signature um, that coffee should not taste like berries, but should taste like chocolate and nuts. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, those are the broad parameters around like, you know, picking up coffee. And um, for instant coffee, what happens is essentially coffee gets brewed and then crystallized and then powdered, right? So it's actually, um, you know, something that's pre-made and then packaged and preserved, right? So so that's why it's considered like, you know, uh, A, not great quality. B, also, I'm not, you know, I'm not scientifically very clear on this but somebody did send me an article a week ago saying why instant coffee is unhealthy. And it had like a bunch of points that explained it. Um, so, you know, there's, um, so, so there's this whole idea that instant coffee is not fresh. Yeah. Right. The only thing that's fresh is when you brew it then and then, right. So, so we've always maintained that that's how it should be. And like, you know, we should get the freshest coffee out to our customers. From our supply chain perspective, we don't roast our coffee ourselves, right? Because uh, that's a, it's a whole different ballgame. It's a science in itself. And uh, we realized early on that we're not, uh, we're not a roastery. You know, if we were a roastery, then we would sell beans. We don't sell beans, right? Uh, so we get our coffee roasted from a partner roaster. And we built a fresh supply chain around it where we have freshly roasted coffee coming in every 21 to 30 days. And we cycle it that way.
1: Amazing. This This is really cool. And does it matter how like finely or coarsely you you uh, grind it, or does that is that
0: less? No, it matters. It makes a big difference. It makes a big difference. Uh, you know. Uh, so for cold brew, you need to have a very coarse ground coffee, right? So um, again, like you know, um, to explain it to you. So if you have it less coarse, right? Say if it's kind of fine. They need to brew it for fewer hours because the extraction speed increases. Okay. The coarser okay. it is, the slower the extraction. Interesting. And cold brew is supposed to be brewed overnight, so you need slow extraction. Yeah, so anyway, this is, this is you know, um, it's scientific. It's it, it has like a lot of... Uh, so our objective, though, again, is to tell the customer that like, this is not what you need to be concerned about. You know, what we do is, here's your bag, put it, leave it for 12 hours, and you have your coffee, so like for us, it's like you know, don't worry about all of this because we've already worried about it. Yeah. And what you're getting is like the final amazing product that you can enjoy, right? Because again, for us, you know, as young, uh, you know, like 22 to 23, or even in college, like I didn't want to know all of this about you know coffee and tea unless you're a connoisseur or an aficionado. You don't want to know these things, right? So if someone's telling you these things, you're like. It goes over your head, right? (laughs) And we believe that in India, like, uh, you know, that's the situation right now, right? And uh, yes, like, you know, people are moving towards, you know, becoming more nuanced about whether it's craft beer, third wave coffee, uh, craft gin, you know, all of these things, right? It is becoming popular, but there is still like the bulk of the consumer that uh, wants it easy.
1: Okay, yeah. For sure. No, your coffee is amazing. It's so easy. And I can't wait to keep drinking. it. I'm going to hold up on the cold brew as well. And I'm excited to try that out. But Armand, thank you so much um, for taking time out. This was amazing.